Amen. Kingdoms and kings will all pass away. But there's something about that name, Jesus. Jesus that cast out demons, the name of Jesus that saves, the name of Jesus that heals, the name of Jesus that restores, the name of Jesus that infuriates lawless and loveless hearts. There is something about that name. Something spiritual, something supernatural, something eternal. Thank you, Cassandra. Uh, the world is looking at the news. The world is looking at, at current events. We are looking at Jesus, our soon coming King. So you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 24. And as Luke mentioned, we're beginning a series today on the end of the age, or the end of the age, uh, age meaning uh, in the Greek eon, the end of this present time. It's going to be an exchange. We'll exchange this time, this old earth, this worn out earth for a new earth. Matthew chapter 24. If you look back, your heart will be filled with sorrow. If you look around, especially in the news today, your heart will be filled with anxiety and fear. If you look forward, your heart will be overwhelmed with fear and despair. But we're followers of Jesus Christ. We're the church. We're not those who look back. We're not those who look around. We're not those who look forward. We are those who look up to our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. And our heart will be filled with faith and boldness and love. You see, the thing about end times or the end of the age or current events or the last days or the second coming or the day of the Lord or the rapture, however you want to put it, It's not about trying to recognize the Antichrist, trying to recognize the mark of the beast, or trying to recognize the new world order. It's about knowing Christ, walking with Christ, so that as uh, John writes in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, we, the church, say, come, Lord, come quickly. And Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And we, with hearts that mean it, with hearts that love our Savior, say, come, Lord, come quickly. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, and we read, Jesus left the temple currently. And I've been there just this past summer. It's on the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, where centuries before this, Abraham started to sacrifice Isaac. Mount Moriah. Where the, the, the Jews and the Hebrews, under the leadership of David and then Solomon, and then after the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah, built and then rebuilt the temple of God on this mountain. And now in the time of Jesus, under the leadership of who Jesus called that fox, King Herod, but he was a great architect and he was a great builder. He built incredible landscaping and flooring, stone flooring all around the temple mount area. You could put a couple of football fields in there. I've walked around it. And he built buildings all around the temple and he made it a commercial site. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said about the temple in Jesus' day that it looked like a mountain of snow glistening in the sun. Jesus left the temple, this, what should have been the eighth wonder of the world, and he was going away. 
And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, it would be like you going to Washington, D.C. and looking at this monument and that monument and that monument, and your eyes would be so big and you'd be so dazzled and so impressed. Especially for these young uh, disciples, these young uh, farm boys, these young fishermen. And here in this city of Jerusalem, at this what should have been the eighth wonder of the world, they were dazzled by these sights. And they were pointing them out to Jesus as if he didn't see them. And as if Jesus can be impressed by something that men build. And in response to them pointing out this temple, which, incidentally, is no longer there because of what we're about to read. Um, If you go there today, the temple where the Jews went into the holy place and the Jews who went into the holy holies isn't there. Because of, again, what we are about to read in this next verse, what is there today is uh, is called the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar. It's a very sacred Muslim site that over the centuries have been built there. If you see a a picture of Jerusalem, it's that picture with that gold, it looks like an upside-down onion, that gold building. That's what sits on top of Mount Moriah today. The flooring that Herod built is still there, but none of the temple is there any longer. None of the buildings of the temple are there any longer. It's just that Muslim site. So if you go there today, you see Jews praying at the western wall, the Welling Wall. Maybe you've heard that on the news. The Welling Wall, see the, 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 the temple was built on a mountain. Herod built flooring all around it and down. And so the side of the wall that was closest to where the Holy of Holies was before it was destroyed, that wall is called the Welling Wall or the Western Wall. It's where people go to pray. You see Orthodox Jews rocking back and forth as they pray at the Western Wall, and they pray at that wall because that was the closest place to where the Holy of Holies was. So that's why it's still a sacred site to them. You have Muslims everywhere worshiping and praying because of that Muslim site, the Mosque of Omar, and then you have Christians walking everywhere because of everything that it means to our history and also our future. That site is an international crisis waiting to ignite, as you can imagine. And they pointed out all of these temples, and Jesus said, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In fact, in 70 AD, about 47, 48 years after Jesus made that statement under the leadership of General Titus, under Caesar in Rome, plowed in with Josephus, the Jewish historian, notating everything that he saw. They decimated the city. They raised the city. And when it came to the temple, they tore the temple down. Literally, not one stone was left on top of the next. And recently, they excavated stones that are much bigger, than, taller than me, and, and huge stones all beside one another. And I walked amongst those ruins, the fulfillment of this prophecy right here. They were all thrown down. And I say all of that to say this. In terms of biblical prophecy, Jesus is 100% accurate. In terms of biblical prophecy, the Bible is 100% accurate. Any prophecy that in the timeline of history could have happened has happened. 
I believe 81% of the prophecies that were prophesied in Scripture have already happened. We're waiting for 19%. And if the 81 have already happened, I mean to the last detail, we better expect that the 19% are going to happen as well. For example, Daniel chapter 2. I'm just going to skim through some of these prophecies that have outlined history and history has fulfilled precisely. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's uh, vision of a statue. It had a head of gold. Or Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted. There was a statue and God gave this vision. The statue had a head of gold. It had a breast and chest of silver. It had a belly of bronze. It had legs of iron. And it had ten toes mixed with iron and clay. And that was the current empire, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and subsequent empires to follow. Babylon was known for their wealth, thus the head of gold, but there was a stronger empire to follow that was Persia and the Medes, thus the the stronger element of silver, but not as rich as Babylon, the gold. And there was an empire to follow them, and that was the Greeks. They were stronger. That was the bronze, but not as rich as the silver or the gold empires. And then there was the bronze empire to come, I mean the iron empire, and that was Rome, iron Rome, who crushed everything in its path. And those four empires have come and gone exactly as Scripture prophesied they would, and now we are waiting the ten toes mixed with iron and clay. That's iron. It's going to come from that former European vicinity that Rome dominated, and clay. It's going to be a federation of empires, thus what we believe will be some common European empire. History has fulfilled it to a T, and now we're waiting for the remainder of that fulfillment. Daniel goes on to prophesy about a beast with two horns. One horn was stronger than the other, and horn represents power and authority and honor. And that was the Persians' horn. They were one empire, but they were an alliance, and the Persians were stronger than the Medes, thus the stronger horn than the other. And we go on and read in Daniel about, about an animal that was a ram. Thus the horns, the two different sizes, the Persian and the Medes. And the ram was running fast, but behind the ram was a goat. And this goat had one horn that grew so strong and so tall, again, representing power and authority. The ram was running, trying to get away from the goat, and the goat wasn't running, the goat was flying. And the goat caught up to the ram, and the goat trampled the ram and broke the horns off. And this represents Greek, the, the Greeks. And that one strong horn was Alexander the Great who conquered the known world by the time he was 33 years old. And he reinvented warfare so that it was fast and it was quick and they would flank their enemies and descend upon them. And then that horn broke off untimely in the prophecy. As Alexander the Great died early without any heir to his empire... And four smaller horns grew back. And historically speaking, after Alexander the Great died, his four generals just courted the world and they each led one of the four quarters of the world. And biblical prophecy is not our focus in this series, but I just wanted to share with you a handful, just a small handful of prophecies that Jesus prophesied of as the temple would all be destroyed. And how scripture has outlined Human history and human history has fulfilled to a T anything that Scripture has prophesied. 
And interestingly, Rome was not in the business of decimating temples. They preserved temples. They preserved cultures. They set up governors over their conquered people, and they allowed them to continue in their culture and in their worship. That's one of the ways that they maintained peace. Caesar gave the order to General Titus not to destroy the temple, not to destroy it. And yet Jesus prophesied the temple would be destroyed. And in warfare, a flaming arrow perhaps caught those great cedars of Lebanon, and they went up in flames, and the temple came down, and it was known to have wealth within, and so it was plundered, and not one stone of the temple, not one, was left on top of the other. I've seen synagogues that Jesus walked in and talked in, and stones are on top of the other. I've stood on pyramids that are ancient and thousands of years old, and stones are on top of the other. Not one stone is left on top of the temple of God, the Jewish temple, because Jesus prophesied it would be so. Now we enter into Matthew chapter 24, and everything that Jesus says has happened or is going to happen, we can count on it, because Scripture and our Christ has a 100% success ratio when it comes to 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 prophetic accuracy and integrity. So, let's continue. Verse 3. They leave the Temple Mount. They walk down. There's a valley they walk through. Then they walk up a hill. It's kind of like if you've ever been to Trinity Park. It's kind of like that hill that overlooks the stage area, except for it's much, much bigger. And on the side of the hill are all sorts of tombs and graves. We put flowers. They put rocks It's probably what Jesus was referring to when he said, these rocks will cry out if you don't praise my name. And so they walked down the valley off of the temple. They walked up the Mount of Olives, and there's gardens there that Jesus would go to and pray. And there they overlooked the temple, and it was glistening, as Josephus said, like snow on Mount Moriah. And the disciples were so sobered by what Jesus prophesied about the temple that they had questions. Verse 3. So Jesus sat on Mount Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. And finally, one of them asked, Tell us, when will these things be? They asked him three questions. When will these things be, the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of your coming, Christ's second coming, or the sign of your coming that also simply refers to when you come into your kingdom, when you set up shop, when the old world order is gone and you set up your order? When will be the sign of your coming? We now know this to be uh, the rapture and the second coming, which are two different events. And what is the end of the age, or eon, the current order to the new order, Christ's order. And these are the questions they asked him. And if you have a Bible where Jesus' words are in red, the next two or three or four pages are all red. And we have Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, what we call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus unpacks events to come. And he says in verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. And from this, we have about eight or nine signs of... It's going to take us a handful of sermons to walk through this. 
But we have right here in the next 12 or so verses about eight or nine signs to indicate the beginning of the end. Not the end, but the beginning of the end. In other words, a great sorrow is going to be born on our planet. We know this sorrow is the tribulation. This great sorrow will be born into this world. But before this sorrow that will last seven years and every credible commentary and theologian will agree this tribulation is a seven-year period. And as this seven-year tribulation period is born into the world, there are preceding it contractions. And if you've had children, you know that two things are relevant in terms of contractions. To know that the birth is near. Intensity and frequency. When intensity and frequency increase, you know that the birth is about to occur. And the birth of sorrow, the birth of tribulation occurs when these signs increase in frequency and in intensity. Which is why when we look at events from the past few weeks, the greatest earthquake that's visited Mexico in I think 100 years, 8.1 or 8.2. When you consider in 1985, an earthquake hit Mexico and some unconservative estimates, very, very conservative, too low, five to 10,000 people were killed. You look, I believe it was the mid-70s, an earthquake hit China, it's a million people were killed. We had a recently, just before the earthquake of a week or two ago, the 8.1 or 2 that hit Mexico, the largest earthquake to hit that country in a century. We had here a hurricane that hit the Galveston area, and it was the most costly natural disaster in the history of our country, only to a week later to be visited by Hurricane Irma. And so when people say, you know, are we at the end of the world? I say, my understanding of Scripture, though I would like to say just chill, just go about your work, just go about whatever you do, go about exercising, go about planning, go about your 401k, just do your thing. But in reality, Jesus said that we can understand, we can discern, and those in the last times can discern the days. And I believe with all of my heart, we are at the beginning of the end. Because of the sheer frequency and intensity of natural disasters on top of wars and rumors of war. So Jesus gives us some signs to know that we are in the beginning of the end, to know that the tribulation will be born. This morning we're not going to talk about what occurs when the tribulation is born. We're going to talk about that tonight. 6 p.m., come back. And for those who are here at 6 who weren't here this morning, I'm going to quickly summarize this morning, and then we'll talk about the tribulation and what the birth of sorrow will look like. But right now, let's look at the contractions preceding the birth so that we know we are living in the beginning of the end times. And somebody says, but didn't the apostles 2,000 years ago think they were living in the beginning of the end times? Yes, they did. But scripturally speaking, they didn't experience what we are experiencing today. They didn't see what we see today. And yet they still live like they were in the last days. And we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, Don't be deceived. God is not slack in fulfilling His promises. God is not slack 
in fulfilling his promises. And Peter goes on to write, don't you know, a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years like a day. So don't you fall asleep. Get ready. As Cassandra ministered through song, be ready. It always saddens my heart to see somebody in their prime, uh, video clips of somebody like Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, in prime time of his, of his career, in perfect shape. And then to come back and years later and he steps into the ring and you're like, oh man, this is sad. It looks like he hasn't hit the gym in like two years or five years. What's up with this? And he gets beat badly by a, an opponent who's not nearly as quality or legendary as, as he was. The same thing happened to Mike Tyson. The same thing happens to most fighters. They have their prime. They're in shape. They step into the ring. You see they're ready, but then they get slack. They forget the basics, and they step into the ring, and it's evident that they're not ready. And our time will be a success in this series, Be Ready, over the next two weeks. As we walk through Matthew chapter 24 and 25, if you get back in shape spiritually... And as a follower of Jesus Christ, stop looking behind you and having a heart that's filled with sorrow. Stop looking around you and having a heart that's filled and plagued with anxiety. Stop looking ahead of you and having a heart that's plagued with fear and despair. But look up to our soon coming king who's coming to bring all things under dominion, under his control, so that the lamb will lie next to the... um, to the snake and the cobra, and the child will play next to the cobra's den, and nobody will be harmed on all of God's holy mountain of peace, and every low valley of humility will be raised up, and every high and exalted mountain of pride will be humbled. Christ is coming soon. And we are awaiting, as followers of Jesus Christ, that day when God the Father says, enough, enough pain, enough suffering, Enough torment, enough lawlessness, enough lovelessness, enough persecution, enough hatefulness, enough abusiveness, enough. And then he turns to his son and he says, it's time. And he says, assemble the elect. We're awaiting for that day. Jesus says to look for it. He says, don't get lazy. Don't get slack. A thousand years is as a day to God and a day is as a thousand years. Don't get slack. Look up toward Jesus, who promises, I'm coming quickly, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. And so we, the church, say, come, Lord, come quickly, because we're ready. Will you be found ready? If Jesus raptured his church before you get home, are you ready? Is your heart and mind ready? Or are you slack? So, here are the signs that we are looking at. One. Great deception will be coming all over the earth. Great deception. And again, this isn't the signs of what we're about to read up to verse 14. This isn't the signs of the tribulation. This is the signs of the birth of the tribulation. These are the contractions of the tribulation. And so as we walk through this, ask yourselves, are these signs increasing in frequency? Are these signs increasing in intensity? Could we be living in the last days? One, Jesus said, you'll know that the end is near. You know that the earth is groaning as in childbirth, about to deliver sorrow into this world, waiting for my return, when one, there's great deception. Let's look at chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, 
See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And let's just look at our headlines. I mean, in the last 50 years, there's been over a thousand people, a thousand leaders in the world who have claimed to be Christ. We've seen many right here, just 45 or an hour, minutes to an hour south of here was David Koresh, and he led many astray. There's all sorts of people who step up and say, I am Christ. And we know this is the Antichrist. Anti is a prefix that simply means against and instead of. So an Antichrist will rise up against the true Christ and instead of the true Christ. We know that there will be one main Antichrist. But before that, there are many, many hundreds and even thousands of false Antichrists. And sometimes people look at these antichrists and say, well, see, your Bible isn't credible. Look, somebody claimed that they were something. Somebody claimed that they're Christ. Look at all these religious fanatics. Church, that doesn't discredit our message. That corroborates, that affirms our message. Jesus said, this is what will be in the last days. Many will rise up, and we see hundreds and even thousands rising up claiming to be Christ. Second, there will be great divisions. And we go on and read in verse 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Wars, that's hot war. That's shooting bullets at each other. And rumors of wars, that's cold war. That's plotting and manipulating and espionage and, and uh, political rhetoric going back and forth toward one another. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Does that sound like our day today? How many wars are we in currently? It's hard to keep count these days, isn't it? I'm not being political, saying we should or shouldn't. I'm just saying it's hard to keep count of what wars we're in today and what, how many wars we've been in the last 10 to 15 years. This is the wars that we know that we're engaged in. Uh, what about the wars that we are subtly and secretly engaged in? And that's just our country, not to mention the terrorists, and not to mention the communists, and not to mention third world countries, and not to mention tribes in third world countries who are constantly battling one another. And Jesus says, this is the beginning of the end. And when antichrist, and when wars and rumors of wars increase... In frequency and intensity, we know that we are living in the last days. And then we look at that Pandora's box there that I mentioned in the Middle East on Mount Moriah. I was walking through at night. It was beautiful. It was tranquil. Um, people were praying at the Wailing Wall. Muslims were walking to their site. Christians were walking and praying. And it was surreal, but it was a false surreal. It was a false peace. Everybody was tense. If we were talking about Christ and guards came this way, we walked to the other side and talked about Christ there. And you know that if somebody yelled something and started running, then the Israeli soldiers would, would, would have their firearms ready. You just sensed at any moment this tranquil setting could ignite in war and violence. Jesus said that it would be so. Amen. If 
over the last 2,000 years in all of our intellect, in all of our education, in all of our culture, if mankind could have solved the problem of false religion and deception, if mankind could have solved the problem of divisions through wars and rumors of wars, Jesus would be a false prophet. But he said that it would come, and he said to be especially alert when it comes in intense frequency and intensity. And we go on. Third, a sign of the beginning of the end will be disasters. And we read in verse 7. For a nation will rise against nation, and there will be famine and earthquake in various places. Famine and earthquake in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And I don't have to belabor the point, but we can just look at the headlines of the last couple of weeks. And we know that natural disasters are increasing in intensity and frequency. Whether it's hurricanes or earthquakes or tsunamis. And as a result of that, Jesus said, be certain famines will be quickly behind that. And then we go on to read, there will be defamation, verse 8. All these are the beginning of the birth things. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Have you guys been watching in the news lately at the Christian persecution? More Christians have died in our day, in our age, than uh, in all of history in the church combined. We live in a day and age where we are to tolerate anything and everything except the name of Jesus. You will be hated by all nations. Christians will be hated by all nations for Jesus' name's sake. Again, there is something about that name. And you look at the, um, the persecution all across the world. And ask yourself, is it increasing in intensity? Is it increasing in frequency? And then we go on to read. Jesus said there's also going to be an incredible amount of disinformation. And we'll read. Many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. What is the difference in false prophets arising and leading many astray and a false Christ arising? A false Christ is religious. A false prophet is simply anybody who speaks with authority and leads people astray. False prophets arise with disinformation. And with our, ask yourselves in terms of disinformation today, is disinformation increasing in intensity and in frequency? We don't have to look any further than our phones and the internet that it gives us access to. When you think of all of the disinformation that's out there, we don't have to look any further than the politicians who posture and say rhetoric back to one another on each sides of the aisle. We don't have to look any further than news networks. We don't have to look any further than false prophets to understand that Disinformation is increasing in intensity and frequency. And the difference between a false prophet and the difference between a true prophet is that a false prophet speaks out of self-interest and a true prophet speaks exclusively out of the interest of God regardless of cost to self. Jesus says, in addition to that, depravity, depravity will increase in intensity 
and frequency. Back to the disinformation. Many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Verse 12. And because of lawlessness, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is a sad verse because I see this so clearly from my perspective and from my peripheral as a pastor and the people that I counsel. There was a day, there was an age when most of the people who struggled with uh, lawlessness in their hearts and pornography and as a result lovelessness in their actions were men. This day and age, it's just, it's, it's the same. You, you see broken-hearted husbands and children who are abandoned because their mother is addicted, addicted to sex and new relationships and can't stay at home. And lawlessness is increasing, intensely so. And not just in homes and not just in families, but in our world and our culture and the pornography industry and the trafficking industry, lawlessness is increasing. And Jesus says what happens when lawlessness in the heart increases, lovelessness in the heart decreases. And people have no standard of right and wrong. They have no moral anchor. Love goes down. Lust arises. And the bedrock of any society which is the family completely deteriorates because people haven't the capacity to love selflessly because their hearts are so filled with selfish lusts and lawlessness. Ask yourself, is depravity increasing in our day and age? And Jesus goes on to say, there's an eighth sign to know that we are at the beginning of the end. And that eighth sign is the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ across the entire world. We read in verse 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's not saved because he's endured. He endures to the end because he's saved. The way that we know who's truly saved isn't by somebody walking an aisle and filling out a card in a church setting or raising their hand at youth camp. The way we know that somebody's saved is because they endure to the end. And they're not saved because they endured. They endure because they are saved. As John wrote in 1 John, children, the church, if people come in among you and leave you, they were never one of you to begin with. And I'm I'm not talking about somebody leading a Christian to another church to serve in ministry and the Lord leads and hope works doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. God is active in many beautiful churches But when people abandon the faith, when they desert the faith, Jesus, the the, the scriptures say they were never part of us to begin with. And this gospel, the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then Jesus said, after this eighth sign, he said, and then the end will come. He said twice previously when describing the beginning of the end, the contractions that increase in intensity and in frequency which will give birth to this seven-year sorrow such as the world has never seen before or will after. He says a couple of different times after he says a sign to look for in terms of the contraction, this isn't the end. It's not the end. It's the beginning of the end, but it's not the end. False Christ rise up. Wars and rumors of wars. 
In our world's history, there's been, I think, 6,000 years of war. Maybe in there, maybe I've read a couple of hundred years of scattered peace. 6,000 years of war. Jesus said, this isn't the end. It's the beginning of the end, but it's not the end. But it's after this last sign that Jesus says, and then the end will come. And then sorrow will be born onto the earth. And that last sign, that last contraction, is the gospel of Jesus Christ being declared to everyone, everywhere, and every nation across the entire world. And guys, let me tell you something. That's happened. That has happened. The gospel of Jesus Christ has touched every corner of this small globe. The world used to be a big place, but because of our trains and planes and automobiles and the internets and and modern communication devices, the world is a very, very small place. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone forth to the entire world. And Jesus says, now the end will come. And if we look back over these signs, we say, well, there's always been deception. Well, there's always been division. Well, there's always been disasters. Well, there's always been deformation of Christians because they proclaim the name of Christ. Well, there's always been disinformation. Well, there's always been depravity where lawlessness increases and lovelessness decreases, where love decreases because lusts rise. There's always been these things, yes, but never before in this frequency, in this intensity, coupled with this eighth sign of the contract that precedes the end and that is the declaration of the gospel of Christ to the entire world so when people watch the news today and they come to me for comforting words to say we can just go back to doing our own thing right we can just go back to being in shape and not really being a true Christian and just sort of having our interest in mind and really forgetting about the interest of Christ we can just go back to kind of playing church and not being the church right we can just do that because the end is not really near right I say you better be ready Because according to the words of Christ, who has a 100% success ratio in his prophecies, say, we are in the end times. We are in the last days. All of these signs have taken place with increased intensity, increased frequency, coupled with the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world. You better be ready. As as surely as Christ came, he is coming back. You better be ready. So what do we do? I'm going to close with three points. I'm going to summarize this sermon tonight and go into what the tribulation will look like as we continue to walk through Matthew chapter 24. What do we do? One, know that we can trust the Bible. We can trust the Word of God. Second, we better get people saved. We better live like Jesus and we better get people saved. You better make sure that there's no unsurrendered aspect of your heart and mind to Christ. Spiritually speaking, if you're the heavyweight champion, the boxer, and you're in the ring, are you in shape? Are you in your prime? You better get in your prime, spiritually speaking. And we better go after souls. Are you ready? Would you stand with me, please? So you have people who need Christ in your life. I have people who need Christ in my life. Let's gather them up. 
They could be friends. They could be family members. They could be enemies. Let's gather up people who need Christ. If a house is burning down, we don't run inside and say, hey, guys, it's really beautiful outside. It's about 80 degrees. It's a nice, cool breeze. I've got some lemonade out there. Come on. Come on. Come follow me. We're not so passive. If, if a house is burning down, we run inside and we talk, we yell at the family, this place is burning down. Can't you smell it? Can't you see the signs? This place is burning down. You better follow me outside. With that kind of intensity, with that kind of fervency, with that kind of passion, let's round people up. Because those who place their faith in Christ's work on the cross and His resurrection are saved. Those who haven't are not. We better lead people to Christ. You know, as we continue through Matthew chapter 24, we see that two men are working in a field and then boom, one's gone. We see that uh, husband and wife are in bed and boom, one's gone. Are the people in your life ready for Christ to return? And we'll, we'll talk about some of the timeline things and when does this happen and when does that happen and the reality of some of that stuff. I have my strong convictions and other good friends have their strong convictions and they di- differ and we fellowship just fine together. Reality is some of these prophetic um, interpretations, you get two preachers together, you'll have four different opinions. You get three commenta- commentaries, you'll emerge with seven different opinions. And so I'm going to share through my convictions and Um, in terms of when and what some of these things are going to look like. But in reality, there uh, there are prophecies that really touch on things in a lot of detail. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, for example. Revelation, for example. It touches on things with great detail. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus responds to their questions, not so much by answering their questions. He doesn't satisfy their curiosity. He stirs their caution. He doesn't give them answers. He, he stirs their awakening. So Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus, he, he combs through it more with a, with, a, with, with a broad stroke brush. But the overall essence of his words are you better be ready. You had better be ready. And you better make sure that your friends are ready. And our church is a city on a hill. We are a lighthouse. We are true to our calling, His calling. I'm not the CEO, as I've said. I'm not the president. I didn't dream up a vision. I just try with all my heart to boldly declare the direction that He told us to go and said, let's go do it. Let's go into the highways and the byways and let's compel them to come in so that His house is filled and souls are added unto the kingdom. So there's people in your circle who need Christ. There's people in your circle who, spiritually speaking, maybe they're saved, but they're slack. Or maybe they're not saved and they're lost. Let's round them up. So October the 1st, we are having an invite Sunday. We're all rounding our friends up together. And I believe it's going to be the answer to many people's prayers. It's going to be the answer to a prayer of of a little girl whose dad maybe is an alcoholic and he comes home late and he doesn't treat her mom well. We're the answer to that little girl's prayer as we assemble people who need Christ and we preach the gospel and we see chains broken. And that's the name of the series, incidentally, Chains Broken. 
we're going to be the answer to the prayers of um, many parents whose prodigal childs are way out there in the world and they're lost and they've given up on them, but we're not going to give up on them. We are going to pray for them. They're going to come back. And then those tears of agony are going to turn into tears of joy. If those children come home and are free from their addictions and chains are broken. And I could go on and on and on. But let's together as a church family round up people whose chains need to be broken. They're going to be saved. They're going to be delivered. They're going to be freed because we're going to be praying. And anything that we do as one has incredible authority, kingdom authority, has incredible anointing, incredible power. And as one, we're rounding up people whose chains need to be broken. Back to this question. Are you ready? I was hanging out with some friends last week after church, and um, it was Brandy, Victoria, Jabez, and uh, Eric, and some kids. And I said, hey, let's talk about our walk with God. How are you guys doing? And nobody really volunteered. I said, let, let me start. I said, I've been struggling, to be honest. I said, I never started out in the ministry because I love the ministry. I started out in the ministry because I love Jesus, and I wanted everybody to know this life. So I started sharing with everyone everywhere, and so a ministry was born. But I love Jesus before I ever thought about loving ministry. But then ministries are born and there's logistics and burdens and pressures and disappointments. And then you, you put the car before the horse and you bypass the loving Jesus part and just go to the loving ministry part. And everything gets real dry real quick. I said, I just need to return to my first love. And just pray for me that this week. And um, one of them messaged me and said, how are you doing, Shane? How's your heart? How's your walk with Jesus? And I said, you know what? I love that message. And I've had a really, I've had a good week with the Lord. But all of that to say this. How's your heart? How's your walk with the Lord? Are you ready? Or is your heart in the past, looking back and filled with sorrow? Is your heart looking around at the world news and anxieties? Or is your heart looking forward with fear and despair? Or is your heart looking up to the one who says, I'm coming quickly? And does your heart have such a relationship with Christ that it beats faster at the thought of the second coming? And those humble mountains being exalted and those lofty, prideful mountains being humbled and perfect peace on God's holy mountain. Are you looking forward to the return of Christ so that you say, come quickly, Lord, come quickly. You know that you love Jesus. You know you love Jesus when your heart starts longing for his return. Are you there? Or are you slack? Are you slack? So this morning, let's just respond. If you would bow your heads with me, please. I wonder if how many of you can relate to me and that maybe you got a little bit slack and you're a little bit out of shape spiritually or maybe a lot out of shape spiritually. Raise your hand high. Okay. Let that acknowledgement result in repentance and come forward and repent and then ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then leave this place as we'll leave together into the mission field, rounding up lost souls with a heart that seeks after Christ. All right, the altars are open.